Thanks for clicking the play button. This episode is quite different to previous Just Ask Kathleen episodes, and I want to explain why. On Monday, my eldest, Remy, and I sat a few hundred miles apart and recorded this conversation over Zoom. It's something we talked about doing for a while in the hope to shed some light on addiction, recovery, repression, gender, and sexuality. Please be aware that some of this conversation could be quite triggering. We recorded this in one morning with no rehearsal and no notes. And while recording, we had to take three short breaks as it was very intense at times. Our hope is that our conversation helps others in a similar situation. I do hope you all get something from it. Thanks again. Okay, so there's been quite a hiatus since our last Just Ask Kathleen recording was made. It went out on the 29th of January 2020. We had a lot going on, a lot of changes. So I'm here with my eldest, Remy, and I'm going to hand over to them to introduce themselves. Okay, yes, I'm Remy. And listeners might remember me from the Just Ask Kathleen podcasts. Um, I was known by Emily at that time but I've gone through some changes and I'm now known as Remy and I guess this is a chance for us to sort of share our experience on this journey together and the way that kind of mental health also addiction and gender sexuality repression all that stuff hopefully we'll kind of cover a few of those things um, and just have a chat really because we've had these conversations together and we thought we'd like to capture it for other people and see if it would help them. Absolutely and I think my hope is that this podcast helps mothers, parents, you know other people who have somebody in their family who has been struggling with their mental health and there's been real sort of concern about what's going on and then you know obviously the disclosure happened in 2019 about how where you were at and how you were feeling and All I wanted to do was support you and learn more about what was going on for you. And it it put everything, well, it was like the last bit of the jigsaw, wasn't it? Like when when it all came out and when when you were working through so much stuff, I just thought, oh, okay, Mm. this makes sense. So I'm immensely proud. I'm quite emotional today because I knew we were recording this. I'm emotional in all the right ways, like positive. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm emotional in that I feel great relief to where we are, where you are, and where we are as a family, um, because you have done the work. And oh my goodness, I, I don't even know how how you managed to stand up and and speak up about who you were and what you were going through. I think I have the privilege of having a loving and supportive and understanding close family and so that's really helped I think you know so many people who kind of have these struggles are ostracized from family and friends and don't have that support but I hope that becomes less common um, as these things kind of are more out there in the open so in November 2020 I was married to a lovely man that we'd been we'd been together um since 
we were essentially since we were teenagers and we'd kind of grown up together and you know enjoyed our life and we're sort of settling down and throughout our relationship the main one of the main struggles that we went through was what I considered my behavior and the narrative for me internally and possibly from from outside as well was that I was always causing trouble and you know what's wrong with me you know I'm I'm mad or I'm difficult to be around things like that and and that's what I believed really um I often thought what is wrong with me why am I making my life difficult why am I making the lives of people around me difficult by you know through sort of alcohol and drug abuse and um you know balancing work and responsibility um so essentially a functioning addict which you know allows it to kind of go unnoticed but it was a problem and it really confused me because I you know deep down I thought like what is what is going on what's wrong um and I just thought well it must just be something chemically wrong with me and I never thought to wonder if there was anything else because you know, I was in a loving relationship. We really cared about each other. There was nothing wrong in that relationship, really. You know, there was no kind of abuse or resentment or anything like that. It was just kind of, we just loved each other and thought we were going to be together forever. And I hadn't really considered anything else. Then in November 2020, I had had a period of sobriety of about five months. And during this time, that was kind of the longest that I'd had for quite a while. I started to have these feelings kind of bubble up and I, I was kind of starting to think about my sexuality, essentially. The main thing actually early on in that period was that I was, I would be watching TV with my husband and I now reflecting on it, I understand it, but I was sort of avoiding any kind of non-heterosexual relationships on screen or, you know, feeling uncomfortable about that. But then the other thing that was happening was I was really trying to find men attractive, cis men attractive. I was going out for a run and I was sort of looking around and I was sort of like, I know the the list of facts of like a, you know, a male body that you see, you know, a model male, which obviously the beauty standards of the media is not what we should go by. But I was just sort of had that as a benchmark in my mind and I'd be out for a run and I'd be looking around and thinking, that's, that's technically a hot guy, <laughs> but I'm just not feeling anything. And so there was these little kind of moments of questioning and wondering and actually it was really painful because I kept wanting to just push it away and I kept thinking god life would be much easier I really hope that this isn't a thing and I kept trying to push it down but I think because I was sober I didn't have my normal mechanism to repress that stuff so yeah there were a lot of there were a lot of moments like that that kind of built up and then I had basically like a revelation one weekend it was over like a couple of days and as soon as I opened that Pandora's box I it just my life changed at that point Mm -hmm. and when I knew that I wasn't straight and that was at the time that was the extent of my realization that was enough to get on with when I 
realized that I wasn't straight, I had to tell my husband straight away. I couldn't keep it in. I guess it was like years and years and years of keeping it in. And I thought I can't do this anymore. And, you know, one pattern of our relationship had been me telling little white lies about drugs and alcohol and little things like that. And I really wanted to be an honest person, but it often came up where he would say, why aren't you telling me how you feel? Why aren't you, you know, you should, I'd love it if you told me what was going on. Um, So it'd been like a lifetime of that trying to protect everyone else um from my from me but on this day or this weekend I just it felt like it felt heartbreaking and it felt like my sort of world was crumbling but at the same time it felt like there was some hope for something new that I'd never experienced before or not since I was a child yeah I I I remember when you told me and I partly wasn't surprised um I knew that you and your husband were still in love with each other. You still love and cared for each other. And I suppose from my perspective, I was thinking about you being well. I just wanted you to be well. The drug and alcohol thing was news to me. um, And you had hidden it very, very well. Um, It was a real, there was a real split in my mind thinking, okay, if, if this sexuality issue is it is the thing that's going to get her clean and dry then I completely embrace it because I want I want Remy to be alive um and then I had my son-in-law who I loved and was speaking to on the phone and he sounded so broken it was really difficult and so I was thinking oh there's part of me thinks is this for real like is this actually is it is this it or mm-hmm. is it that there's more to come is there more to come I just didn't know I was I was trying to be the grounded supportive mother-in-law and mother and yet I felt so not it wasn't it was obviously I was sad because of the pain that I was hearing from from both of you and I just wanted to to fix it and all I could do was just which is not like me because I'm solution focused, (laughs) I had to just be present Mm. and be able to give you whatever you needed, you and your husband. I just had to really be a silent, supportive person almost. Mm. I know I wasn't silent because that's impossible. But you know what I mean? I wasn't being directive, instructional, all the stuff I do in my job. I was being very... It was like baby steps for me because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I didn't want to do the wrong thing. I just wanted you both to know I absolutely had all the love in the world for you both. And I wanted you to know you could both come to me and speak to me and mm-hmm. let me cuddle you and hold you and, and whatever you needed, I would give it to you. And um, yeah, I it was a process. There was lots of tears, but also relief that potentially this the sort of self-sabotaging that I was witnessing, the the, the awful stuff that you'd done in the past to yourself um, through drinking drugs was potentially coming to an end. But I, of course, I didn't know that. I, I was just hoping that was the case. Yeah. And I think I was also feeling that, um, like I said, it was, it was heartbreaking and felt like, uh, yeah, everything was going to change because it couldn't possibly stay the same. And I had this 
I definitely had this sense of excitement, um, but I was also very cautious about it because I had been told for a good reason that I had, you know, I had episodes of feeling, you know, what people might call manic or, you know, and then I'd go into a depression and I was told by professionals and people around me to be wary of that and to be wary of really really going with that because it might be dangerous and I had I had been to hospital a couple of times because of that and I don't know if you're aware of that mum uh no I heard I know that you tried to self-admit a couple of times didn't you down south yeah I did yeah that was quite that didn't I didn't happen <laughs> but, yeah yeah, uh, I don't know that I knew. Were you an inpatient? I don't know. How I knew that. Oh, no, I think maybe you didn't. Um, no, it was. Um, so the other thing that you know, because there there are visible um, scars, is that I used to self harm quite a lot, especially yeah, if I'd been drinking, I would. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so a couple of times that's kind of gone a bit too far, and I've had to go. To hospital but so there's that there's that in my background there's diagnosis um which you know I'm kind of like considering now I'm not saying that it's the wrong diagnosis but I think there's there's probably a bit more to it and in terms of like my identity and things like that but yeah so bringing it back to the mo- that moment that weekend um I kind of had this sense that everything was going to change and obviously there was a bit of fear but there was also excitement and I did have some elation and I was kind of there was a bit of me that was happy the, the main sadness was for my husband um because I felt like you know although I hadn't led him on over the years I thought I wish I had been in touch with myself mm-hmm years and years ago before you know in the beginning because if I had been then this wouldn't have this wouldn't have happened it wouldn't be so painful you know I felt like and I still feel this way and it and it does you know I still cry about it that he's his future has completely changed like the future that he thought he had with me Mm -hmm. um but he's you know we're good friends now and he's very understanding and he can see me living my life happily and I think that's he's been really supportive um so yeah so as listeners can probably tell there's been quite a lot of like turbulence throughout my life since I was probably a teenager um anorexia um self-harm drugs and alcohol and all this time like a sense of confusion and a sense that I was built wrong like I there was something wrong with me and that was such a common thing that I talked about in therapy I was like what is wrong with me why can't I exist in the world like everyone That's else so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um and and this in the context of being in a loving family like I know with a sibling who's gay and has been gay yeah forever and and we've all embraced that and I think that as a mother that's a slightly confusing thing for me because you you know I hope people listening know I'm very open and loving to whoever the person is like Mm. you know I have no concern about someone's gender sexuality 
genuinely, I just don't understand. I don't understand anything other than that because why we're all human why why would you differentiate between this person or that person so mm. knowing that you grew up in that environment I suppose for me I, as a mother I think did I give off any vibe that I wasn't happy that your sister is gay I don't think so and then I think well was she trying to conform because you were high school sweethearts and Everybody was saying, oh, aren't they great together? That They're a lovely couple. And so there was this kind of groove being created that maybe became such a heavily worn groove or whatever that you couldn't imagine coming out of it. You know, you, you maybe thought that if you ended it or if you spoke out about what you were starting to feel, you would disappoint, in inverted commas, disappoint lots of people which is, is a real sadness, isn't it? Because how many people go along with what society expects of them mm. because the idea of upsetting others or being targeted in some way, in a negative way, is too painful. And yet living a life that isn't authentic to who you are gives you more pain than any outsider could ever give you. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's not it's not because I'm speaking to you directly that I'm saying this. It's absolutely true because I think we're, you know, this is a raw conversation that we've not, you know, we've not gone as in depth probably as we are just now. Um, but it genuinely wasn't you. Mm. Genuinely wasn't you suffering from, you know, a, I don't know how you would want to describe um, our other parent. <laughs> but I think, yeah, the yeah. trauma related to him mm -hmm. um I think I mean that really that really messed me up as well um and it's taken me until you know my late 20s to really like put that to bed and um but I think that I think that made me think that I was wired wrong um I think that experience made me think anything I anything I think is right I can't possibly think, you know, I can't possibly trust my own judgment because my judgment of him was way off. And mm -hmm. that was like a, also a common theme in therapy was like, I can't trust my perception of reality and I always have to check. And my husband was like, you know, I, there was a bit of a parent child dynamic between us. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I played a big part in that. And, and certainly I should give him a lot of credit because in the end, he dismantled that um that dynamic but I would always revert to him you know if he decided on something it was very common that I would sort of go along with it but I didn't feel like I wanted to do it but I just thought yeah but that's just you like yeah. you know, moving out of a shared house into a flat moving out of our flat into the sort of suburbs of um of Brighton and you know settling down and things like that I had to, I had resistance inside um I wish you know I have a few regrets of the over the years one of them is that I wish I'd had the courage to trust myself and my own judgment um but I think that's nothing to do with you or my siblings it's to do with the way that I the way that I experienced the world in relation to our other parent as well yeah, yeah I know um, yeah. definitely left quite the legacy but um 
Yeah, I mean, so from here, from that, from that bit where you had that weekend, where we were all like, "Oh wow, okay, right, okay," you know, <laughs> we're sort of rallying. Do you want to explain what happened next? Where do you want to go with that? Mm, yeah, because um, I suppose this is the journey towards hope. It's been a rough ride for everyone, not just me, and. Um, yeah, so that happened like in November, December of 2020. Um, and then my husband and I stayed in the same house until just after Christmas 2021. But I obviously was really struggling. We ended up spending Christmas, the week over Christmas apart. Um, I had been sober for like five or so months um, and relapse over Christmas and then I was moving out of yeah I was moving out of our sort of marital home um, into lodging with um, with another woman I was doing that like the middle of January I think the woman you were moving in with was a good friend's mum wasn't it Who yeah had a room to rent and also something I want to say because I think this is really pertinent for any anyone who has an addict in their life when when you hear the words and for somebody who's not who's not aware of what addiction is like when someone says I relapsed over that spell and then and then they talk about the next bit the word relapse is absolutely loaded with memories of complete trauma especially that December Mm. over Christmas and New Year so when you said I relapsed and then uh, what came up for me, if you don't mind me sharing, do you mind me sharing that? Go for it. Um, was me planning your funeral. That's when I planned your funeral because I couldn't get hold of you. And we weren't allowed to travel across the border. And you were away down in the south of England. I'm in the northeast of Scotland. And I was phoning people. People were checking in. You, you did turn up, but... But the word relapse, I always think it's interesting in therapy when a client says to me, and then I relapse, but then what happened the week later was, and I think, yeah, but what happened in that week for everybody around you, you know? And it's a word that is so concise, but it holds so much for so many. And it was on the the 27th of December, I was aware that not, you weren't allowed many people at the funeral. So I was thinking, okay, so who will I let know because I'd have to send a Zoom link to the other people. Mm. And it was that way of, that was just my way of coping, like going to being organised about it. But yeah, I just wanted to mention the word relapse, because I think it's important to recognise that when you say it, you were in a dark, dark, dark place. And the ripple of that, that that darkness was spreading right across the country to people who loved you. Mm. And for anyone listening, who is supporting someone in recovery, I know how you're feeling when someone relapses. So you're not alone. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that I sort of skipped along that. I think my, yeah, I think the feeling of guilt that I had um, of my husband, you know, what I'd done to him and what I'd done to our kind of future life and things, that, you know, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, so I can't blame a situation for drinking or using. Um, but 
and <laughs> um, the situation, you know, gave me an excuse. And, you know, I was always looking for excuses at the time. I was, you know, I was thinking it took a lot of work not to um, when things were difficult. But this time I just thought, well, I feel guilty already. I'm going to feel guilty. And it was just like the logic it just doesn't exist. But yeah, I thought I thought it was hidden. I thought stupidly. I thought yeah. that no one was aware. Um, but I think maybe a friend had come around and then they'd told my husband. And then my husband had spoken to a friend who lived across the road and had spoken to you. And so there's this whole ripple effect, like you said. And yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't do it justice to say I relapsed and then. And it doesn't give you the credit that you deserve for being there and just kind of you know not not offloading that onto me at the time but having to deal with it you know mm -hmm. having to think about it and this is your child and I can't mm -hmm. imagine what that feels like I, I'm not looking for credit for for any of this at all like that's not the thing it's more about understanding when someone relapses they are in a broken place like that's the thing if people get angry at their loved one who's an addict there is really that is really futile it, it's understandable and I have I have been angry of course I have but this person needs professional support and a solid support network be that family or good friends mm -hmm. but they need to pull away from people who have turned a blind eye or they need to pull away from people who've actively helped them use and they need a solid clean and dry support network around them mm. professionally and hopefully for other people family and friends too that can really be there not judging them not criticizing them not condemning them for what they've put them through because let's not forget this is not about me it's not about your good friends and and other family members who've been there this is about you needing and screaming out for help mm. to get into recovery and to be in recovery and to stay clean and dry. So I had had the relapse over Christmas and then I was due to move out of the, the marital home mid-January and I was moving into, as a lodger, into the house of a a friend's mom um so and it was quite like it was a nice peaceful sort of place to be um she kept doves she didn't drink and so that was really nice yeah. um but sadly as soon as I moved in there I relapsed again mm -hmm. and I just yeah I just couldn't keep it together I'd say the the rock bottom was and this is really hard to say and okay. hard to hear but the rock bottom of that relapse was waking up on the floor it's probably like lunchtime having drunk till whenever and passed out with a razor blade in my hand oh god and that moment I thought oh my god I could have died mm had -hmm. you cut yourself as well no all right but that was your attention before she went unconscious. Yeah. Must have been, yeah. And and apart from anything else, like apart from it being a risk to my life and a risk to my health, 
Um, it was extremely disrespectful to this person that I was living with. And I just thought, what am I doing? And I had a friend who was sort of checking up on me. And um, she took me for a walk and just said, you're ill. Mm-hmm. You treat this like an illness. You need to, you know, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose the place to live. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your health. Like you need to sort this out. Um, and she just told me how it made her feel. And yeah, that kind of, it was really, it was really tough. Like mm-hmm. not so tough with me for me because I was not sober so I think that's the that's also the thing that happens but what has happened for me is like I didn't have to deal with the sadness and the pain that I caused until I got sober and I think that's quite a common experience is like you kind of delay having to like deal with you know be responsible for your actions until you get sober and that's where people say like one of the benefits of getting sober is feeling all your feelings and one of the downsides is feeling all your feelings (laughs) yeah it's overwhelming and you get to feel those highs but you also get to feel those lows and the guilt feeling um yeah I mean it's up you know it's not woe is me it's just I delayed that period of that I should have been taking responsibility for my actions and how it affected others Mm. but I was drinking through it so I wasn't and I was delaying it and so I my friend who had been going yeah I'd gone for a walk with and she'd said like you need to go to rehab there's no there's no other option and I thought oh it's expensive and it's not that bad like I'm it's I'm not drinking every day and and she just said but you could lose everything and you could end up doing that and I remember the moment was when she said you are unwell Mm -hmm. okay that's that's the moment um, and so I spoke to you and and very generously mm-hmm. don't know if you want to say yeah no it's fine I, I came off the phone and said to my husband I think we're losing Remy and he said what do you mean and I he knew he obviously he knew what had been happening and he went well tell tell Remy to find a, a place that is good do her research, get the friend to do the research, you do the research, and let's let's get her in there for, say, a month, get her in for a month. And I said, okay, let's do that. And I said, but what? And this was the bit that made me cry. I said, but you know, rehab doesn't always work. Like, it just doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if she comes out and relapses, we put her back in. And we keep putting her back in until she's well. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that could still make me cry today because I thought, oh, my God. This man, like, you know, he will literally do anything mm. for the love of me and the love he has for my children. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't, obviously didn't tell you the bit about he'll let you go back as many times as it takes. Mm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I wasn't going to tell you that. <laughs> but I did say, right, you and your pal, do some research, do what you need to do and get in as quickly as you can and you can go for a month like just go for a month and let's see what happens yeah so I did I went to rehab and um yeah it was a it was a 12-step rehab and I'd kind of done a bit of 12-step before uh but 
Yeah, I I remembered, you know, a few years before that, I'd said to my husband, like, I just need to be tied down when I feel like this. I just need to be tied down. And and I was reminded of that when I was in rehab because it was also lockdown. And so, oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, it was lockdown. So the first week of the month I was in rehab, I was in isolation. And they say that the opposite of addiction is connection because when you're you know in active addiction you want to isolate and um, it is a lonely place to be although you might be surrounded by other people who are using or drinking um so that was a that was a spiritual emotional and physical detox I went through in that one week before the three weeks of being um in the rehab but anyway that's yeah we've kind of gone over the you know the other sort of mental health stuff so I was in rehab for four weeks and then I came out and it did feel it did feel like a fresh start because, you know, I think I think definitely I was putting pressure on myself because of, you know, how much it cost and which I think is fine. I think that's good <laughs> <laughs> if that's what it takes. And I was also I'd had a clear head for long enough to really think about what my friend had said and you'd talk to me while I was in rehab about how you, how you were feeling and I think that was good as well because I was in a safe place where I could you know handle that it was the 25th of January that's the 25th of January 2021 yeah yeah I, I am so proud I mean honestly I know recovery is a it's a daily thing for you isn't it you know you really you put the work in you do all that you need to do to support yourself and something that has stopped happening now for me, which is great, is when I see your name on my phone, I don't feel sick. Because I used to just get that stomach drop, heart in my throat, oh shit, what's happened? Mm. Um, but now when I see, and this, I didn't think this would ever happen. I'm, hand on heart, I never thought this would happen because this has been the case for several years for me mm. because there was always something happening that wasn't good. And and now when I see the phone, I just pick it up and slide the bar across and have a chat or FaceTime or whatever. And it was only, I don't think it was, I think it was only like two or three weeks ago, I thought, wow, I don't, I don't feel sick when I see Remy's, name come up I feel like just normal like just you know happy happy normal not like that nervous where's the nearest toilet feeling <laughs> yeah so I just wanted to mention that that, that I am so proud of you mm-hmm. my husband is so proud of you everyone's proud of you because addiction is addiction and it's not something you can just flick a switch and turn off yeah I, I go to meetings I have a sponsor and I work with yeah other people who are in recovery and that really helps I've got so many reasons to stay sober I've got the realistic view of my addiction my alcoholism and that keeps me sober as well because I I am under no illusion that I could have a casual drink ever I'm under no illusion of that so if I used to kind of play games with myself and think oh yeah I could just have one but now I'm like no I definitely can't so that's helpful but you know it still creeps in sometimes but I've got people to talk to with that I think as well addiction kills obviously repression also kills and I think those two things are really linked for me I was always you know in the the method of like recovery 
that I'm involved in, um, they talk about like, you are always going to be an alcoholic or an addict. My understanding is that your resilience is lowered if you have trauma or if you are cert- wired a certain way. It's no excuse. But I would say that, you know, repressing my sexuality and gender, which we'll come up to as well, um, I think it kills. It could have killed me. I could have not seen the day where I was truly myself because I might have died before I'd realised. That is so sad, isn't it? And that will be happening to people. Yeah. Of course it is. But you're right. And yeah, so the alcoholism... I'm curious about this. So it's it was always going to be there. Do you think the depression fed the alcoholism or the alcoholism fed the depression? I think probably, just off the top of my head, I think probably both. So the alcoholism fed the repression in a way because it kept it repressed because you're not yeah. think, you're not having all your thoughts and feelings. So when I had those difficult feelings, I would drink or use to not think about it. And then it would never get to the point where I would know really what I was thinking or feeling because I was always slightly sort of numb to it. And I think the other way around, like the repressing my identity, sexuality, whatever, did make the alcoholism less easy to manage because I was having those difficult feelings and I did think there was something wrong with me and I've since learned that that's quite a common experience for people who are I I would identify as queer uh, which I'm sure we'll sort of come on to um, but not everyone in that community in the LGBTQIA plus community identifies in that way which is obviously fine um, but yeah I think that's it's definitely a common experience that repression it kind of festers and mm-hmm. I, I think I should I think I should go back actually to what you said about what, what we were talking about with family and upbringing and things and me having a sister who's gay and mm-hmm. and all that and having a liberal like progressive parent and um, and all that so essentially like a safe place where I could have come out but I think yeah you'd said about the kind of fitting in with the sort of the expectations of others and that's not the expectations of my family at all it was probably expectations of the small town that we were in and that we grew up in and the expectations of my now still husband we've not had a divorce yet but that's fine so the expectations of him and and also me because I thought that was what we needed to do yeah I think as well at school I didn't see any non-straight non-cis people that were out I'm sure there were plenty of them and I'm sure there are still today that are not living their truth but I didn't see anyone like that and anyone who kind of appeared gay was was bullied and it was a laughing you know they were a laughing stock they weren't blending in at all and I think it's, it's different now but I think that really had an effect because I was drawn to what I now know are quite queer icons and and like symbolism and stuff like that. I mean, apart from anything else, I decided to move to Brighton. That's like, oh, moving to Brighton from from here. Oh, that's a very interesting <laughs> society yeah. to immerse yourself in. There were so many things. There were so many indicators. And I want to be careful not to offend my husband and offend whoever else did, you know, didn't see that. It seems obvious in hindsight, but at the time, you know, we'd we'd grown up together and we both made the assumption that 
you know, this was just how I, what the sort of things that I like doing. It wasn't an indication of my sexuality, but there were definitely some indicators. For example, yeah. Yeah, moving down to Brighton, got into roller derby. Um, I used to, when I, when we were in Scotland, I used to busk in Dundee. Some great queer anthems. I wonder why I'm drawn to Katie Lang. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't remember any of the others, uh, but I'd kind of I listed them with my partner the other day and we thought, oh God, the signs were all there. I think that's the thing though, with with these signs, if I'd grown up in Brighton, I would have seen it around me and gone, Oh, I'm drawn to this because of this. And so I can be part of this group. Whereas I would have been what I thought was on my own if I'd done that when I was at high school. Mm-hmm. And I think for for me, when you were looking at studying in Brighton, it made sense because it's a creative centre. We know it's full of diversity, but you were studying music for film and media and Brighton seemed like the school there, the college there. Yeah, this has got everything because it's because of where it is and because of the people it attracts, it's going to be great. So I didn't really go there in my head. Yeah, there were definitely some little indicators, but it wasn't until I I was ready and I'd had that sort of time to have a clear head that I really found that. And um taking steps forward in the timeline to the kind of more positive. And I think it, it was important to lay the foundations of the difficult stuff that happened to lead me here. When I got out of rehab, I was still living with this, I was still lodging with this person and that was really nice. Like it was, I was using it in the way that I ought to have been using it before, which was just to kind of recuperate and have a calm sort of environment. And then I, yeah, I ended up, spending more and more time with a friend a female friend and ended up having a relationship and we're still together now and that's been such a wonderful journey (laughs) I mean as we're yeah we're being frank and open the funny side of it is that when I first was in that relationship and I spoke to you about this at the time I felt like a, a teenage boy in puberty I just felt absolutely mad in love and you know, just kind of, I'd never felt feelings like this before. And I actually didn't know that I was capable of feeling that way. I thought what I'd had before was what you have, or again, I was broken and other people had these other feelings, but I wasn't, I wasn't built to feel those, but oh my goodness. And I, and I told you all the way along, all the way along the journey. And I was just sort of like, no shame. I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. that was quite an intense period but it was amazing and I got to really know myself my body and um and I sort of revisited old films and series that I had avoided because they they showed kind of queer relationships and I I hadn't realized that's why but I'd sort of like put them to the side yeah and and now I could enjoy them now and so yeah, so that was really great. And it also has helped me get in touch with my body more. And I, and as a result of that, I kind of, yeah, I definitely feel more myself. And I feel like I have a clearer head and I have more in touch with what my body needs and things like that. All this stuff that I think a lot of people go through when they're much younger. I'd had blinkers on, no one had put them there. I just not experienced these feelings and then all of a sudden I'd experienced something and my whole life changed and I realized that my body was capable of these things that people talked about but then I was born with the name Emily that's the name that you gave me and I've, I've been very aware that you've 
been talking about the past. You've not used that name, which I really appreciate. But at the time, I'm, I'm going to do it. My partner said, you know, when I think of you, I don't think of you as a man or a woman. I just think of you as Emily. <laughs> this is audio, but if you could see my face, I'm going to try and describe it. I just sort of looked vacantly above eye level and just kind of my it felt like there was sort of explosions going on in my mind because so many different things made sense my sort of persona when I was out with my friends and I felt my best was this kind of in between gender and I didn't have words for it at the time it was something that I wasn't overly aware of I had um what some people would call gender non-conforming friends so like people who we're sort of in the middle of the spectrum, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. identifying as non-binary or gender fluid. So I had a couple of friends, but it felt very like outside of me. I didn't ever think that was me. But then weirdly, I'd had those experiences where I'd kind of played with gender and I'd not really noticed that that was actually something that was making me feel good. So over the next couple of months, few months, um, I sort of was thinking about it and talking about it. And September... I changed my name to Remy. I told my work about my new name. I told people that I was using they, them pronouns and I've not looked back. Yeah, I'm sort of considering top surgery at some point. So I'm going through that process, um, having psychological assessments booked in um, over the next year. I've been binding as well. So I had a friend who was using a binder which I can explain uh, as well for anyone who doesn't know for people who were assigned female at birth um who have breasts it can be quite gender affirming to look like you don't have breasts for some people and it can be dysphoric to people who you know who don't feel comfortable with that that's the sort of experience that I had and I didn't really realize that I was having that experience until I tried on a binder that I bought mm. and it just, yeah, it just blew my mind. And then I went through this weird sort of mental cycle um, where I wasn't sure if it was making any difference or then I would think it was making such a difference and blah, blah, blah. I kind of went on this journey. But yeah, so I've decided that that's where I want to go. I remember when you sent me a picture of you in your work shirt with your lanyard around your neck and your trousers on and stuff. And you said, what do you think this looks like? And of course, the lanyard was just hanging straight down because there was no breast there anymore with the binder holding you so flat. And, you know, I'm your mum. And I thought I would be like, but actually, I think I said in the message to you, you look exactly as you should look. Mm-hmm. Because you did, you did and you do. The name has been like, I'm good with it now. I can say Remy, Remy, Remy. But in the beginning, because I named you after my friends, two lovely wee, wee girls who are both in their 40s now, uh, I, I gave you the Emily and Elizabeth name. That There was proper grief. There was a process of grief I went through that was more for myself, not for you, because I was really happy mm. that you were able to find a name you loved and that you felt fitted who you are. And for me, I was sad that I couldn't say those names apart from to the people I'd named you after. I wouldn't be saying that name to you, the wee girl that I had with the long curly hair and all that stuff. So that was a bit of grief. But then I got over myself quite quickly and talked about it in therapy. feel absolutely 
great about about your name now and I, and I have photo I couldn't look at photographs for a wee while that I had up of you you know mm-hmm. as a young a young girl but I'm I'm over that now too <laughs> I'm fine you know because I because I celebrate where you're at today and who you are today you're my child you're my firstborn you know and here you are absolutely in your own skin mm. called Remy yeah non-binary I could not be prouder of the person you are mm. and it's like I said this to somebody recently a friend recently I have a relationship with Remy now that I only had fully when she was about when sorry, when they were about maybe five mm. four and five yeah and then after that that's when you sort of disappeared into yourself a little bit Mm. As you can see, yeah. I'm very tearful. Yeah. Why are you crying about that? What, which bit? I think about the name, and I sort of was. I was aware that that would probably be difficult, but yeah, you were very careful not to tell me that that was hard. But you know, when I did my deed poll the other day, I kind of I had this urge that I wanted to share it with you, and then I thought, oh my god, this must be really weird for mum. I'm all right. I really am all right with it. Uh, and I actually really like the name Remy. It's a great yeah. name. And I think the other, I think the other thing that you said that was sort of, yeah, made me a bit tearful was the relationship being what it is now. Is oh, yeah. What it was when I was four or five. Because I also feel that, yeah, I think our relationship's never been better, really. No, absolutely. And, you know, at that age, I was newly away from the other parent, <laughs> as you referred to him. There was a lot of firefighting going on. We were probably both in a, a very sort of strange headspace. You know, you, I was doing my best to be the all-caring, all-nurturing mother, but there was an awful lot going on in the background that you didn't know about. And yet you were also having to deal with stuff I didn't know about. So we were all in our own camp, I think, you know, loving our time together, but also hiding things from each other, even at that age. Well, actually, that's really interesting because I haven't, I haven't linked these two things until now my memory of that time is really beautiful us three me and tina you and i've talked about that in therapy as well where it's kind of been sort of incongruent with the reality because the story the timeline of that time was that it was so traumatic you'd just lost your mom i think and then this other person in our life who was causing chaos and so technically on paper that should have been a really traumatic time. Maybe I, you know, maybe another child in another time might have blocked some of it out or, you know, resented that time. I remember that as like a highlight in my life. Yeah, yeah. it was special. I mean, definitely. Because when we three were in that house together, it was just a love fest, wasn't it? I mean, it was just there was so much love between the three of us. And although there was this heaviness, sadness and confusion too, um, when it was just us lads, well, it was just, you know, no money for electricity, but let's play being the Victorians. And we all sleep in one bed and that's what they used to do. So that you never knew I didn't have any money to, to buy more credit for the electricity viewer. So all that stuff, yeah, it's nice to hear that. And I think Tina has said the same, that her behaviour was tricky at that stage because she was going through some stuff that, you know, we didn't know about. And and yet there was those moments of just sheer, sheer joy of being kids 
in this little cottage in the middle of nowhere together. Mm-hmm. And and we're back there now. The feeling mm-hmm. that I have now is the, the older person's version of what I felt then. So lucky that we have come through, you have come through, Tina has come through so much. We've never mentioned Charlie, but that's because it's a different dad and he's great. <laughs> I love that. I love that this has probably been quite a heavy listen so far for a lot of people. Um, but there are real glimmers of what can happen when someone gets well, when someone goes through recovery and also is able to be in the body they identify as and this is probably where we should talk about gender and sexuality and how confused I was and how well you've done at teaching me all about that because I really didn't know much about it yeah let's talk about that next yeah so getting on to gender and sexuality which is a kind of a journey that we've been on together in different ways um I've had the benefit of being in Brighton where there's a lot of diversity in that in those ways and since coming out and being with a female partner I've been very immersed in what I would call the queer community um as a lot of my friends would identify as queer and we can get on to what that means for us um because it kind of encapsulates both gender and sexuality um so gender as I understand it, doesn't necessarily align with what you were assigned, the sex you were assigned at birth. You might refer to someone as being assigned female at birth. Uh, so I was assigned female at birth because of my genitals and yeah. um, and someone might be assigned male at birth. Something that's really important within the gender sort of debate as it is at the moment is that it often, people often talk about gender or you know a woman being a woman who was born assigned female at birth and a man being someone who was assigned male at birth because of their genitals but the thing that I think is really key for people who struggle with that is remembering the existence of intersex people my understanding or my knowledge of intersex um people and what that means at birth is is quite limited but I think it's a very key thing to kind of understand and educate yourself about if you're trying to explain the kind of the trans debate or the the gender kind of diversity um debate as unfortunately it is at the moment a bit of a debate yeah often the narrative um around gender kind of denies the existence of intersex people trans people non-binary people so yeah so I suppose your sex when you're born is assigned according to your genitals what happens with intersex people my understanding is that they are born with either both sets of genitals of some kind or hidden genitals or so they can't be assigned a certain sex and I don't know what the I don't know what the procedure and the process is now for how they do get assigned um Mm -hmm. what, what sex they do get assigned but I know that in the past, it was either arbitrary, you know, they would just choose and then they would maybe, you know, do an operation or something like that. Um, so that I think is really important because it kind of dispels the argument that gender is so linked to the genitals you were assigned at birth. Because intersex people who are who are born intersex, um, uh-huh. they, what gender are they? And it yeah. has to do with you know how they feel um, 
and I think that's the that's the next thing is that gender is to do with how you feel inside about your we call it like the gender expression so um so some people who are assigned a sex at birth may grow up with a sense of kind of detachment from that sex and and that gender so they might feel uncomfortable with calling themselves a woman or a man you know as as according to what they've been assigned um and they may feel like dysphoria so gender dysphoria is really Mm -hmm. really common in that experience and so you know the the language around this is changing all the time and and it's kind of growing with different experiences and um and so I'm sure you know this podcast this episode in a few years time you know we should say that it's probably going to have a bit of outdated language and yeah yeah and I I should also say that I'm not an expert on it at all this is just my experience and my knowledge on it and I suppose my I should probably just talk about my experience as yeah uh 100% about which is that when I discovered that there was another place that I could you know I could identify with on the gender spectrum um I realized that I didn't identify with male or female Mm -hmm. and when I was sort of shown that as an option Mm -hmm. it kind of clicked into place and I thought oh yeah I don't feel like I fit into that binary Mm -hmm. and for ease of it kind of being easier to sort of digest and the more kind of common phrase that's used is is non-binary so that that means that you sort of exist in between um I think I would personally I would I would identify as gender fluid kind of somewhere in between and moving between the the sort of experience of being a bit masculine a bit feminine and the thought of that being an accepted and understood and experienced by other other people really kind of gave me a sense of peace I think because it made my body make sense and it made the feeling of my body make sense in my mind and so I've had that I've had that privilege I think of being in a community where there are are other people who have that experience and who have talked about it so I think one of the one of the things I hope comes from this podcast is that maybe people who aren't in that community can hear it and go oh okay so there might not be other people who are out in inverted commas um as gender diverse or gender questioning or gender non-conforming as some people call it um but they can maybe relate to something of what I'm saying and so I would identify as gender fluid also kind of you know for ease of you know forms equalities forms I would say Mm non-binary I use the pronouns they them I would also say I'm trans non-binary so the word trans as well my understanding of it and the understanding varies across the various communities so it does get a bit confusing but my experience and understanding of trans is that I don't identify with the gender I was assigned at birth and so that's I'm sort of transitioned into something else so I'm kind of so if if someone is a trans woman wouldn't have been assigned that at birth so that's my understanding of trans so I would say on an equalities form I would say trans non-binary using they them pronouns 
Right. So that's gender as my, I mean, it's a massive thing. It's like a, there's all theory and yeah, there's all sort of theory and different language and language is always moving and changing, which is beautiful because it's sort of yeah. um, incorporates the experience of lots of different people. On that note, language changing, when you first said to me, I would use the word queer, that had really negative connotations in the sort of 70s, 80s when I was growing up. If somebody was called queer, it was an insult, you know, and, and it was just really a horrible word to use towards somebody. Um, so when you say it, and, I, and I'm now really comfortable with it, the word queer, but initially I was like, oh, I've got to get over this kind of um, negative feeling I have when I even hear it being said, because it's not negative anymore, because the community is using it about themselves so that's that's a really and when you said earlier in a few years time if this is listened to there'll be some outdated language and there'll be you know it'll be quite old-fashioned maybe even to hear this but it's really good and I'm, I'm enjoying hearing you describe all this because this was completely new to me yeah and I think the the thing that I've enjoyed about going on this journey with you because it has been a journey for me as well is that you've been so open-minded and kind of had that growth mindset of like oh this is how you this is what you say and this is this goes against my experience of you know in the 70s so I think on that the the label of queer I think again my experience and my feeling about it is that queer is a, is a word that has been reclaimed for the community to use about themselves like you say say I'm part of the queer community and I might refer to someone else as queer um but I think it is a bit touchy and delicate if you were to use if a if a yeah cis person we'll get onto that language as well in a minute (laughs) cis person was to call me queer um that didn't know me or even even someone who did who does know me but just you know it feels a bit awkward so if you if someone's referring to me I would be happy with them saying non-binary or gender fluid or something like that so it's kind of more like factual but it's kind of it's almost like a term of endearment and in the community it's like a sense of acknowledgement it's kind of depends on the person and what what community they feel that they're part of but I definitely feel like I'm part of the queer community and that yeah. feels empowering for me going back to another word that we used cis this person is someone who identifies with the gender that they were assigned at birth so yeah. you I believe are a, a cis woman would you identify? yes I am definitely a cis woman but also that I learned from you recently that a cis woman can be lesbian and bisexual and heterosexual. So cis is purely about the body I was born into and the gender I was assigned is who I am. So it's not about sexuality. Because I thought I thought initially a cis woman or a cis man was a straight man, a straight woman. Mm, yeah. I feel so proud of you for like asking the right questions and being open to like feedback and stuff like that. Cause I think it can be a bit touchy, you know, when you feel like you've maybe got something wrong in inverted commas, you yeah. can feel a bit defensive, but that's not been my experience of you. So I felt really like I could help you understand. And, and also I can understand your experience by doing that as well. So, yeah. So you've, you've touched on what I wanted to get onto the next bit, sexuality. So again, there's, there's all different labels for sexuality. Um, 
lesbian, gay, pansexual, um, asexual, lots of different kind of sexualities. So the sexuality part is about who you are attracted to. That is, again, my understanding. Um, so I think my partner, before she got with me, she's a cis woman, she identified as lesbian. And then she sort of, through being with me, and I came out as like trans non-binary, being a lesbian, the sort of traditional, I suppose, way of, of describing that would be cis woman, cis woman, or trans woman, cis woman, or the other way around, trans woman, trans woman. So it's someone who identifies as a woman with another woman. But as I wasn't identifying as a woman, then she's sort of saying, I think I might be pansexual. That's kind right. of a bit more. Mm-hmm. The pansexual, again, language changing, different for everyone, would... Yeah. The, the sort of um, general understanding of that is that it's not, there's no particular gender. Yeah, there's no particular gender that you find exclusively attractive. It's depends yeah. on the person, that sort of thing. Well, I, I kind of want to avoid going into all the different definitions because yeah. I know that, you know, there'll be, there'll be members of the community who will say that's wrong or yeah. you know, need to speak to someone who who is in that particular community that uses that label or that identifies with that to really yeah get the right definition but um I think that's the the main thing that you've come to understand is that gender is about how you feel in your body mm-hmm. and sexuality is about who you're attracted to like with everything if you're straight heterosexual it doesn't mean you like every single man, <laughs> single woman no. yeah so if you're bi it doesn't mean if you're a woman, it doesn't mean you're going to fancy every other woman. Which no man or woman is safe. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. And that's, you know, bisexual um, people have are having a bit of a hard time as well at the moment. Yeah, but, I read about that too. It's terrible. So that's my understanding of gender and sexuality from my perspective. But yeah, queer for me isn't just about gender or just about sexuality. No it's both either you know would like, that be like an umbrella term yeah but it doesn't yeah so it doesn't talk about particularly gender or sexuality it's like yeah I guess it's queer I guess the root of it probably is queer being different and mm-hmm. different from the norm in inverted commas which is heterosexual cis yeah no interesting and I think for me I mean this has been quite the record. This has taken us three goes. Like we haven't rehearsed anything, have we, on this? And this has been three separate half-hour uh, slots we've recorded this over. And I've learned even more again, like even just talking uh, to you in this way over Zoom. But what I wanted also to share with people is that because I have been witness to Remy's journey, I want to support other people who maybe don't have another person in their life that they can lean on or support. And by doing this kind of recording, it feels like a a first step. Now, I have shared some aspects of Remy's journey with close friends. And unfortunately, it hasn't always been well received. And some of these friends have been people I have known since the early 80s. Some are more recent friends. But it became clear 
from their comments and from their reaction to me, a lot of pity. Oh, poor you to me as a mother. And I'm like, hang on, wait, whoa, what? You know, no, 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 don't feel sorry for me. I've never seen Remy as happy and as true to who she is, sorry, to, to who they are um, ever. Like since like, well, since we were about five, four or five. I feel like I have my child back. My fully grown adult human is here. And, you know, they're non-binary and that is fine by, by me. They're in recovery. They're in a relationship that they're really happy in. They are reflective. They're being accountable for things that happened in the past. They're the best version of themselves I could ever have imagined if I gave myself the chance to ever imagine and I didn't for the longest time so now I'm like no so these these friends one gave me pity one said an expletive about what a load of excrement uh that really offended me I, I I said to her no it's not this is absolutely true to who they are I've had other people say I'm not going to be able to call them that name because I've never known them to be anything. I'm saying they're them, but they didn't use that term. I've never known them with that name, and I'm not going to do it. Um, I've had somebody else make all sorts of weird statements about mental health being behind this, poor mental health being behind it. And that, we had a conversation about that recently, didn't we, Remy? That if you've had to deny who you are forever... Little wonder people's mental health is poor. Little wonder the statistics showing the suicide rate in the trans community being off the scale high because they're having to deny who they are because they're not being accepted by their loved ones or the community or society at large. How awful is that? Like to think that people are killing themselves because they're not allowed to be the person they feel they are. I mean, that is a disgusting statistic and it's a disgusting way for humans to treat other humans. I just, it's beyond. So the friends who reacted really badly, I'm just quietly stepping back a little because I don't want to get into arguments and fights with these people. They're pretty fixed in their opinions. It won't serve me to get really upset and emotional in trying to convert somebody who's not going to be convinced that this is for real, that this is happening. Uh, Because for some reason, some people feel threatened by it. Now, we're not going to go down all that rabbit hole, but we know that the stories that come out and the propaganda around people going through a trans process in order to sexually assault women. I mean... Wow, that's a whole other debate for a whole other day. The people who have embraced me and celebrated you, they're bang on point, those friends, and and they're always going to be in our lives. And the mother of your namesake is one of those people who, you know, the the names I gave you at birth, the mum of of that person, of those people, they're just like, oh, brilliant. Finally, you know, they know what it is that's been you know, inside of them all this time. So, you know, there's people of older older people than me, people who you might think would not be supportive, who completely are supportive. So 
I'm never going to, we're never, the community is never going to convert everybody to love and support whoever you are and whatever your story is. And that's okay, because then we can turn and be with the people who completely do get it. Or, I mean, you know, maybe don't get it, but just love people. Like, you know, when we talk about being kind, just be kind to humans. Just, you know, there's, there's a book I read, which was absolutely great for me to learn more and more and more. It was by a lady called Christy Whittlesey, The Beginner's Guide to Being a Trans Ally. And it helped answer lots of questions I had. In fact, perhaps we could add that book to the show notes or something, just so people can access it. It was really useful. And after I read it, I was way more informed again. And you'd already answered a lot of the questions, but I felt very kind of inspired by what Christy wrote. Um, I actually wrote to her and thanked her and she wrote back and said thank you for writing to me you can imagine that sometimes I don't get such a favorable response to my to my book and that's again it's sad we're all human we're all here with the same frailties the same worries the same concerns and if you don't feel you're in the right body imagine adding that to the mix of just going about your daily business it's massive so yeah I've really enjoyed speaking about this and saying things that we've shared privately and and some new stuff actually that we hadn't shared privately has come out and I just want other parents other um, friends of of people who are trans or who are confused at this point to just give them a hug and say look I'm here for you I'm going to help you. I don't know what to do, but I just know you. I just want you to be here. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want you to leave. I want you to be here and I can help you in whatever way I can. I will do that. And that's really the message, isn't it? That just keep talking about this stuff and help people be comfortable at coming out. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And I thought that what you said about, you know, people who don't understand the terms and the, you know, wanting to help them to understand but even if you don't understand like you said why not just love why not just be kind and I think that's so important um to treat everyone as equals and I think as well someone of your generation you know you're a different generation aren't you so there's a lot of threat to the trans community from people of sort of your age and older people who would identify as feminists and it's very it's a very touchy subject and like you said we're probably not going to go into it too much but I think the main takeaway from that debate is you know people who have who would refer to you know the fight that women have had to get the vote and you know get equal rights and things a lot of them have maybe closed the door when they got in you know to the to that sort of you know they're safe so they close the door behind them Mm-hmm. and I want to be I want to be wary of doing that myself you know I've got to this stage and oh great I'm here I'm not going to help anyone else but it's always kind of the next rung down of like you know marginalized people so you know I'm a I'm a white trans non-binary person people of color going through this experience have an even harder time a lot of the time um trans women you know I've I've got the benefit I suppose or uh, I have the experience of it actually being quite straightforward for me and I'm, I recognize that that's not the case for everyone yeah trans men trans women people of color 
things like that you know it's very it's it's a very diverse experience and I think it's very important to you know when you reach that position of being safe in your identity and being looked after and being understood there's always more work to be done to lift other people up who are not quite there yet and I think that's I think if we're if we upset anyone I think it will be because of this part of the conversation I think that too and that makes me sad because that's not what this is about this is about shedding light on my perspective as a mother your perspective as someone going through it and how we have met in the middle and and completely embraced each other um, for our own sadnesses about what's happened and also the celebrations we're having on route you know it is interesting that people get so well it's a polarizing thing isn't it mm. it polarizes people um and I don't want to waste and I and I use that word with some hesitation but I don't want to waste the energy I have to support people who are struggling in that journey in their body I don't want to waste that energy on somebody who's just determined to tell me I'm wrong for supporting you I'm not doing it I think that's fair and some people who have the energy or who are you know don't have people in their life having this experience can use their energy elsewhere but I think you're you're putting in a lot of energy to understand and help other trans people and and with their experience and yeah I think I feel like you are a beacon of hope to the trans community you know people who as as someone of your age you know you're not you're not ancient but people like yourself maybe don't have as loud a voice and some of that will be just lack of experience like me I didn't have experience of this you know I had gay I knew gay people men and women who are gay but beyond that I didn't know anybody who had body dysmorphia or was feeling like they needed to change aspects of their body to feel you know like they were in the body they were meant to be in I didn't I don't know anybody like that until this happened so until our experience and that's a sadness to me that's sad to me that I I well, I mentioned this the other day, the programme with David Williams and Matt Lucas, Little Britain programme, where they have, there's, a, there's two characters who are transvestites, aren't they? And they dress in Victorian clothes, ladies' clothes. And I would laugh at that. I laughed at that. And now I think about that and I think I shouldn't be laughing at that because actually that's laughing at a section of the community that I want to support. And I feel embarrassed that I laughed at that now. I think, yeah, I don't think you need to feel embarrassed because it was at the time. I mean, the media has really messed with us, I think. We saw, you know, on the, on the media that gender diversity was a joke. And I think, you know, what's different about you and other trans allies is that you've put effort into change and to learn and grow and I think that's really important I I also have I'm a bit embarrassed that I didn't really know what gender diversity was say like 10 years ago mm-hmm. I remember someone in a club in Brighton came up to me and said do you identify as a man or a woman and I sort of went what and then it was sort of like I laughed with my friends because I thought what's that what does that mean shooting forward to now I kind of they saw me <laughs> they saw me yeah. for who I was 
and I was in I was in a gay club I was in like a queer club and uh yeah I was in that community and they thought oh there's one of us <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Ten years ago. so yeah I was just reflecting on that the other day that's great I love that well thanks Remy for being so open and frank about stuff that was difficult to speak about from the last couple of years but really I hope it just helps if it helps one person eh? you know whether it's the person themselves going through it or a parent or loved one of somebody who's going through it from from both of our perspectives I hope it gives hope and you know just some kind of reassurance that we don't need to understand it all we don't need to know it all just to give the person we care about the support they need to go through this process it's been yeah it's been a roller coaster hasn't it but it's been great I've really enjoyed talking about it and there's been I'm sure there's things that we'll reflect on and kind of process this but yeah overall the story is a positive one and there's always more to learn and you know we've not been able to cover everything but this is this is where we're at now and maybe we'll have to come back to it again at a later point but yeah it's been really lovely I love you, Remy. Thanks for doing this. I've really wanted to share this story so that in the hope that it helps others. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation. Hopefully it will help others going through the same, questioning their own identity and dealing with addiction, or for families supporting someone who's on this journey. As we mentioned in the conversation, language is always changing, so no doubt there will be a time when the terms we use are outdated. The language used means different things to different people, and I wanted to acknowledge once more that this is the story from my perspective, and we are both learning together. As Kathleen said in the beginning, we recorded all of this in one morning with no script, and the conversation is as natural as it gets. So of course there are some things we missed out. Living as one's true self and acknowledging a sexuality or gender identity that has been repressed won't cure addiction or mental health issues, but may help build a stronger foundation for recovery. If you have been affected by the topics in this podcast episode, you can find in the show notes some helplines you can call and websites you can visit for more information and support. Thanks again so much for listening. Mm-hmm.